Good morning. My name's Wilson. If I haven't met you yet, um, I'm on staff here at Incarnation. Really good to be with you this morning. You guys must not like music. That's why you're not at the Red Wing. This, these are all the people who don't like music. Um, welcome. Really glad to have you all here. <laughs> glad there's someone in the room today, you know. Um, we are continuing on looking at the, the book of Hebrews. We've been looking at this book um, throughout the summer. And we just read a really long complicated passage. So I kind of just want to rehearse what we, what we just read. Um, the book of Hebrews, if you'll remember, is actually a sermon. It's a sermon that was written down and distributed uh, to various, various churches. We have no idea who wrote it. Um, we've got a, a couple of possibilities, but 2,000 years later, we're still no closer to knowing exactly who wrote this thing. But it's this written sermon distributed to churches um, and where we're picking up today is overlapping just a little bit with where Keith was last week. The writer is right in the middle of saying um, that he wants these, the people in these churches to cling on to the hope that grounds them, right? To not sort of drift away from that or neglect it and get spiritually sluggish. And the rest of what we read today is just explaining to us what exactly that hope is that grounds us in this life. Right? So the rest of chapter 6 says that God made a promise. And he swore that promise with an oath. So it's like two unchangeable things. And that promise, that hope, it's like a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's like something that goes in behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, that inner place of God's presence. And that hope is Jesus, our great high priest. Then in chapter 7, the, the writer starts to explain how this is so. It's because Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, this shadowy kind of figure, right? He's not like a normal Old Testament priest. And then uh, as like strange as that may seem, and you're kind of wondering what is, you know, what's the point of this? Where's the, where's the writer going? What does this mean? He starts to open up all the implications of that in the rest of chapter 7. And we read that Jesus is a priest forever. He never ends. There's no need for another priest after him. That he's spotlessly clean. That he's interceding for his people night and day, right in God's presence. That he's perfect. That his work is totally complete and finished. And the writer, by doing this, hopes that if we take this, this dive into this deep and, and strange kind of biblical material right? That we might be reinvigorated to cling on to the hope that we've got. And we might ground our lives in the hope that belongs to you if you are a Christian. Um, this passage is, a, I, uh, our family used to live in New Orleans. This passage is a lot like the food that we would eat in New Orleans all the time. Really good. Um, very complex, but heavy. Um, and if you're on a quinoa only diet and, you know, skipping lunch and eating light, then you better saddle up before you eat all of that, you know, heavy whipping cream and crawfish and stuff. But you just got to do it because it's so good. Um, this passage is that, all right? It's, ex it's complex. It is dense, but it's so rich and it's a feast. And here's the point of it. Here's the point that this passage is making. It's that in Jesus, we have a never-ending, never-failing high priest. And so, 
we must cling on to him as the hope that, gra- that grounds our life. Because Jesus is this, this kind of priest specifically, it means we've got this unshakable hope that's like a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We've seen this again and again, and again in Hebrews. Um, God is so gracious to us and so encouraging. Some of the most encouraging things in the entire Bible are found in Hebrews. But he's also gracious enough to scare us from time to time. There is a hope and it is rock solid. That's so clear. But the reverse side of that is that if we drift away from that or if we neglect it, then there is no grounding hope for us. Where will our grounding be if we leave that? So the message is, don't drift away. Don't lose sight of this. Don't put it on the back burner and get in the habit of putting it on the back burner until that's just kind of where Jesus lives in your life. He is our never-ending, never-failing high priest, and so we must cling on to him as the hope of our lives. And the hope today is that if we ponder this, then we might, if we ponder this today and continue on after this morning, then we might find that gratitude starts to leak into our lives. And if gratitude starts to leak in, then hope might start to leak in as well. And we might be grounded in hope. So let's ponder this idea today and let's, let's just break it down. We're, I'll forewarn you, we're going to be in the class, we're going to have our classroom hats on a lot today because there's a lot here. Uh, the writer of Hebrews just goes into the classroom in these chapters. So we're going to go there, but it's rich and it's going to be worth it. So first thing, let's ponder. What's it mean that Jesus is a priest? So if Jesus is our priest, what's that mean? Well, in order to understand that, we've got to, like we always do, draw into the deep well of the biblical story and pull up, right? So in the early pages of the Bible, God sets up priests. Uh, We learned that God chose to dwell in the midst of a particular people, Israel, and that he was going to be their God. And that he was going to do the work that he was going to do in the entire world through this particular people. And that he was going to dwell with them. He rescued them from slavery from Egypt, brought them into the land he promised them, and promised that he would be present with them. And as God's redeemed people, they are given this incredible privilege of having access to the one true God. Of all the nations of the earth, there is one nation that has access to God. But this access happens on very particular terms. Uh, Leviticus, Leviticus is the book that when you're trying to read through the Bible in one year, you fail on Leviticus. And it's the third book of the Bible and you get so discouraged, you know, and you're, you're, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never reading the Bible straight through. But Leviticus is an incredible book because it talks all about how, how a holy God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. And in Leviticus, we learn that there's kind of this sliding scale for how close you can get to God. So think of it like this. You can be impure, you can be pure, and then you can be holy even further on. And what we learn is that no sin or impurity can come near the presence of a holy God. And the closer you get to God's presence, which was in a place in the tabernacle, in the temple, the closer you get to that, the more stringent things become. 
Um, so if you wanted to go into the hospital, if you wanted to visit the Defnol's new baby, and you wanted to go into the hospital and hold the baby, right? Um, if you have the flu, I don't care if you're a best friend or a relative, you can't go in and hold the baby, right? To go into that room and hold a newborn, you've got to be healthy. But take it one step further in a hospital. If you want to go into an operating room, you can't just not have the flu. It's not enough to just be healthy to get in there, right? You have to be healthy and you have to be completely sterile from head to foot to be able to enter the operating room. Um, That's kind of how this works, right? And if you add on to that, that not just anybody can go into an operating room Like, you can't go in just because you think cool stuff is happening in there and you'd like to see a surgery, you know? You have to be a doctor to get into that place, the holy of holies. So if the hospital room with the newborn baby is the holy place, an actual spot in the temple, then the operating room is the holy of holies. Very few people get in, and they have to be completely holy in order to make that step. That's the way that access to God's presence worked. And it's very important to kind of understand that because if we understand that, we can understand a priest, right? There's this whole arrangement that's necessary for how a person can enter God's presence and get close to God. And that's where priests come in. Priests oversee this arrangement between God and man. So they oversee the whole system of animal sacrifices, They oversee what it takes for a person who's been impure or unclean to be clean or pure again. They make sure all the steps have been done and they declare that it's so. That person can enter into another step, right? And very important for our purposes is that ultimately the priests are the ones that that can draw nearest to God on behalf of everyone else. And the high priest is the one that can draw into the very holy of holies the operating room, so to speak. And the high priest can go in there only one time a year, carrying his sins and the sins of the people with him to make atonement. That's what the priests did. They oversaw this whole arrangement for how God could dwell with people and how people could draw near to God. But here's the problem. The priest never moved the story forward, so to speak. Like the animal sacrifices never took care of your sin permanently. And one priest would enter into that inner place closest to God, right? But it was just one person. No one else was able to. And then only once a year. And yeah, he kind of was the representative and brought you with him, so to speak. But at the end of the day, he's just a man going into that place. Just like anyone else. So room full of Gentiles. Um, Use your imagination. Um, We're so, we preach the gospel every week, right? We're so used to hearing that Jesus forgives our sin. We're so used to hearing that God is near to us. We're in God's presence, all these kind of things, right? Um, That maybe we get bored with that or it just gets kind of flat. Or maybe we know all of that's true, but it doesn't feel like God is near, It feels like God's actually very far removed from what you're living through right now. So imagine that, imagine for a second that you're under this old system because it can be really helpful in helping us realize what we've got. Imagine that you can see the curtain closing you off from God and you wonder what it might be like 
to be in God's presence. And what would it be like if you went in without guilt and without sin hanging over your head and just got to enjoy God and experience him one-to-one? What would it feel like to see the animal sacrifices, to see blood spilled on your behalf time and time again and know that it wasn't fixing anything permanently because it, it had to keep happening? It was just kind of a reminder that I've, that I've got this sin problem that needs taken care of. What would it be like to feel the weight of sin and guilt on top of you? And maybe for some of us, there's not a lot of imagining that has to be done because we do feel that weight. And the old system, like, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't enough, right? It was there as a picture. It was there as a symbol, just a little taste of what was to come. And the thing that was to come was a new priest. A new priest to preside over a new arrangement entirely. And that high priest is Jesus. He gives access behind the curtain. He's a way for us to draw near to God. He's fully God. And so he comes out to meet us. And yet he's fully man. And so he goes into the places that we could never reach. The question is, how? How does Jesus completely change this arrangement between God and man? And for that, we got to go even deeper. We got to go to even stranger material and talk about this character, Melchizedek. Okay, uh, but first, first, let's just zoom out for a second. Recall where we are. The main point of this passage is that Jesus is our never-failing, never-ending high priest, right? And we've got to cling on to him for our hope. And what we've talked about so far is just what it, what it means that Jesus is a priest. What would it mean? It would just mean that he is overseeing this arrangement for how we interact with God, right? It's actually a, a very practical sort of thing. So that's the first thing. But second, we're going to see that Jesus isn't just a priest, right? He's a new type of priest. He's never failing. He's never ending. Um, So the priests that you read about in the Old Testament that we've been talking about, they're called Levitical priests, right? Um, Because they descended from the tribe of Levi. Levi was one of Abraham's 12 sons. All right, Jesus is not a Levitical priest, He's of the order of Melchizedek, is what Hebrews tells us. So the question is, what does that mean? Um, who, who is Melchizedek? Um, the passage that we read in Genesis took about 12 seconds to read it, right? That's everything we know. Um, that's everything we know about this character, Melchizedek. Uh, but the writer of Hebrews like, makes this huge deal out of him. He mentions Melchizedek like three times before in chapter 7 dedicates this whole part of the middle of the whole argument to this character. Um, so let's think back to our Old Testament reading. What, what happened in Genesis uh, with the shadowy character Melchizedek? Um, so Abraham, right, fought this battle. And then we learned that Melchizedek comes out to meet him. We learned that he's a priest of the Most High God, which is very interesting because what we've just been saying is that everything we know about priests, when they get set up, happens in Leviticus, which is book number three of the Bible. This scene with Melchizedek happens in Genesis, right? So somehow priest, this priest is set up, and he hasn't descended from the normal line. He's of a different origin entirely, just by God making him one, by an oath, right? Uh, and we learned that it, he's also a king. So he's this priest-king figure. He comes out. 
He blesses Abraham, and Abraham recognizes his greatness and gives him a tenth of everything, which is a tithe. And then he's off the scene. And that is all we learn. If you're just reading through Genesis and run across it, it is like random. What, what just happened? And then there's total silence about him all the way until midway point through the Bible in Psalm 110, when David all of a sudden is overhearing this conversation, as it were, between God and the Messiah and says this, the Lord God says to my Lord, that is, that is the Christ, the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, thanks for hanging in. Uh, If we can ponder this, there is a serious depth to it. There's a lot of assurance and grounding for hope that comes with this, okay? The writer of Hebrews connects the dots for us. All of it is just obscure until we get to this. The writer of Hebrews says that this is pointing to Jesus as a great high priest. This is pointing to the fact that God swore he would make his savior of the world a certain type of priest that's of a completely different order, that sets up a completely different arrangement for how God and you can interact. And that is, that is big. Um, turn to Hebrews. If you've got your Bible, turn to chapter 7. I'm just going to look at a few of these verses that we read that are right in the middle. If you look at chapter 7, verse 18, it says this. Um, after he's just talked about all this Melchizedek stuff, it says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And skip down to verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That is to say, It makes Jesus the overseer of a whole new arrangement for how you and God can interact. A whole new set of marriage terms. How so? Verse 23, the former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So he's never ending. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's never failing. He's never ending, never failing. Once upon a time, God dwelled with his people, yes. He did. But there was distance. Only one priest could get close, and then only once a year, to atone for sin again and again. Your guilt remained. The distance between you and God remained the assurance of God's favor walked a really thin line. And I wonder if anyone in here feels any of that. Because it wasn't just like an an Israelite problem. It's not just kind of obscure Old Testament stuff that we're talking about. Alienation and and distance from God is the deep-seated human problem. It's the scratch that we cannot itch. You can be a Christian, and though you're not alienated from God, this is so, so deeply baked into our psyche and into our soul that it can feel like you are. Or if you've drifted lately and you just feel the distance and there's something missing that you just can't put your finger on, if any of that rings a bell, it's a good indicator that the medicine you need is to look at Jesus again your high priest. 
You need to eat his flesh and drink his blood at the table. Right? Maybe you've gotten caught up in like a lot of theologizing lately, but you've missed Jesus. Maybe you've gotten caught up in the church's response to this and that and everything that's going on recently, but have, have just missed out on Jesus lately. What we need is him. There's a new priest presiding, and he's made it possible to draw near to God. And we've got this kind of priest. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So, this is the point where we've got to draw this into our lives. How does this connect with your life and with my life? How does it connect that we've got a priest like this? And then, we, so we got to look at the last thing here. Lastly, we see that we have to cling on to Jesus as our priest to ground us in hope in our real lives. We have to cling to Jesus as the hope of our lives. That assurance, that access to God is like a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's my favorite part of this whole passage. That phrase has just been ringing in my head this week. Right? Because uh, it, it's not like life isn't really like a field of spring flowers that we get to skip through, you know? We wish it was, at least I do. I always think like if this one thing would change, then it'll be kind of the field of spring flowers, you know? Uh, but it never, it never is, right? It's just the wrong metaphor, right? Life is living out on the open sea, okay? It's like we're in a boat and the storms come. And even when things are pretty good, it's kind of choppy out there, right? When the storms come, we get exhausted from the effort of trying to stay afloat. And the water gets in the boat, and it gets confusing when it gets really dark and frightening. And it's hard to see the shore. It's hard to see the haven. What's going to be solid for you if life is really like this? What's going to be solid for you? Because it can't just be anything, right? Netflix isn't enough. Alcohol's not going to do it. Any sort of distractions like that. Those things can't be anchors to hold you firm. Like that's just us huddling in the boat and kind of hoping things will be different when we peek out again. But it's just kicking the can down the road. We need something solid. You know, and like you can take this ocean metaphor really far. You know, you can't just row yourself out of the storm. You'll get exhausted. You'll get burnt out. To hope in Jesus and to really get in tune with the fact that he's your priest and grounds you solidly in God's presence, that is a difference maker in your real life. This, this image of him as the anchor is the perfect image. Because so often we like, we look for things that we can see to kind of be an anchor to cling on to because they're easier, because they're just right there. And we can't see Jesus. And that's hard. But it makes sense. Because if you think about an anchor, if you can see an anchor, then either it's not doing its job because it's still on the boat and you're just floating around, uh, or you're already at the shore because the water's like that deep and you can just see the anchor right there. If an anchor is doing its job, then it is down in the long dark of the ocean where you can't see it, but it is grounding you. And that is Jesus. He has crossed the veil between heaven and earth into an unseen place, the inner place of God's presence, the holy of holies, and he is solidly there and you are attached to him, grounded. He is in that place where the last sacrifice was made, the once for all that covered all of your sin, 
We got a lot more on that next week. But for now, Jesus has crossed that veil. And we have to do whatever it takes to get in tune with that reality day by day. The hope, this is the hope that we have to cling to. The thing that charges your life. And I invite you to ponder on it until gratitude starts to leak in. And ponder on it again until gratitude starts to flood your life. Right? Like all the things we desire, all the good, the good things we want in life, those will just be extra. Like we'll no longer need the promotion or need the recognition or need the little comforts in life, right? Because the one thing necessary has been covered. Access to God. All that stuff's good. But at the end of the day, there's one anchor. Like whatever you might go through, Jesus has you anchored into the heart of God. Jesus has you anchored into God's heart. And there are some big storms that are completely overwhelming. Like, of course, this is not simplistic. There are times where we got to really wrestle with the truth of this. But a lot of the time, it's just the little stuff day by day that threatens to just beat us down and wear us out, right? Hold fast to what grounds you and hold fast again. Ponder on this until gratitude comes. And then with gratitude, hope. Hope is the thing, that deep trust, that one day he'll make all things new. And if you get in tune with that reality, I'll tell you something happens. From time to time, God turns the lights on in your life, as you will. And you get just a glimpse. You see it for just a second. That all is well. And all must be well. And glory be to God forever. Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.